2: This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we revisit a conversation with Dr. Melba Patillo beals one of the Little Rock Nine.
3: And we get a lesson in air quality and how to monitor the pollutants that impact our health.
1: We have two pollutants of concern here that you can check data daily, ozone and fine particulate matter. And I make decisions for my family based on that data.
3: Those stories and more coming up.
2: You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Henry Zimmerman.
3: And I'm Erin O'Toole. Colorado's air quality is not doing too well. Across the state this week, air quality health advisories have been issued for ozone and smoke around the state. Maybe your eyes have been feeling irritated or you've been especially sneezy. And if you live or work along the Front Range, you've maybe noticed your view of the mountains obscured by smog and smoke.
2: These things have been happening here for decades, and this week, amid the high ozone and the smoke, the state missed a key deadline set by the Environmental Protection Agency for reducing ozone pollution. That reduction deadline was in place because ozone is bad for our health. So too is wildfire smoke, but as KUNC's Ashley Paconi reports, keeping an eye on daily air quality measurements can help, if you can get an accurate reading.
4: Ozone forms when exhaust materials released by cars and oil and gas production chemically react in the presence of sunlight. Although a layer of ozone in the upper atmosphere protects Earth, ground-level ozone is harmful.
5: At higher elevation, we get greater solar irradiance than they do at sea level, so more energy to drive the reaction.
4: And Boulder County Public Health's Bill Hayes says Colorado is uniquely situated for high ozone levels.
5: And then because of our topography, those... Ozone precursors often get trapped up against the foothills, up against the mountains.
4: In 2008, the Environmental Protection Agency set a national ozone standard at 75 parts per billion. The deadline to reach that goal was July 20th, and parts of Colorado still haven't made the cut. But that's not the end of the story. The EPA lowered the standard even further in 2015, from 75 to 70 parts per billion.
5: There is no safe level foreground ground level ozone. And so we actually expect that um, 70 parts per billion to keep being lowered to really make it a health-based standard."
4: Like ozone, smoke poses a lot of health risks because of the tiny particles that can enter the lungs. It's especially bad for people with respiratory conditions like asthma and COPD. Colorado State University atmospheric science professor Emily Fisher says those health risks are there even if you can't smell it.
1: Wildfire smoke, once it's more than a day old, the compounds that you smell are gone. So your nose is no longer a good tool for assessing whether we're being impacted by smoke here in the Front Range.
4: That's why she says everyone should check the air quality index, or AQI, before going outside, just like they would check the weather. We
1: have two pollutants of concern here, that you can check data daily, ozone and fine particulate matter. And I make decisions for my family living in the Front Range, especially my kids, their outdoor activities, based on that data.
4: But getting a precise AQI measurement can be hard to do in smaller communities. University of Colorado-Denver environmental science professor Ben Crawford says Colorado determines AQI with specific stations.
5: They look like trailers, and they're full of instruments to measure um, air pollution. And so each one of these instruments can cost tens of thousands of dollars. And each one of these trailers to measure a whole bunch of different air pollution measurements can cost hundreds of thousands of dollars.
4: Which is why there aren't that many of them in the state. So the ones they do have only cover areas with long-term pollution issues, like cities.
5: But when we have these big events like a wildfire, we suddenly can have air pollution and poor air quality in areas where normally things are pretty good.
4: To address that, Crawford and his team created a low-cost sensor network. While cheaper, the sensors are also less accurate, and they need to be calibrated to work correctly. The scientists tested them on the air pollution from a volcanic eruption in Hawaii.
5: These low-cost sensors, they they work, and they can be part of of a solution to monitor air quality, especially during these kind of extreme events.
4: But Hawaii was an almost pristine test environment. He says they'll need to adapt the sensors for ozone and wildfire smoke.
5: Here in Colorado, in the mountains, it's going to be more complex. It's more chemically complex. It's more meteorologically complex. And fire behavior can be much more complex as well.
4: As ozone levels rise and wildfires grow in intensity, measuring and predicting air quality inside and outside of cities will become even more important. Crawford says the more tools we can develop now to help people make healthy
3: decisions, the better. Ashley Picconi, KUNC. It's been seven years since recreational marijuana stores first opened their doors in Colorado. The state is required by law to study the impacts of cannabis legalization, and a report by the Department of Public Safety on Monday does just that, at least in part.
2: The department's Division of Criminal Justice combed through years of data to summarize how Colorado has changed since legalization. I recently spoke with the author of the study, Jack Reed, who is also the interim director of the state's Office of Research and Statistics. He began by describing why the state required the study in the first place.
6: In 2013, the legislature, you know, in the, in the wake of legalization, decided that it would be Good if we started tracking what are the impacts on legalization. So they passed a law, SB 13283, that set out about 17 different metrics and required the Division of Criminal Justice to start looking at those. And you know they wanted to hopefully have a trend that went back to around 2006, so that we could look at you know the the trend and and how that point around 2013 when we you know legalized. Um, and then 2014, when retail sales began, was there a change in things like, you know, arrests? Was there a change in impaired driving? You know, was there a change in prevalence of use, especially youth use? And they, they tasked our office with that. And one of the things we found out very quickly was that much of the data that they, you know, they wanted turn reports done on simply didn't exist. For example, there was no impaired driving under the influence of marijuana data at all, simply didn't exist. We knew how many people were getting arrested for driving impaired, but we really didn't know what they were impaired by. You know, we had a kind of an idea with some fatalities numbers, but really very little idea there. And so I think, you know, one of the things that this requirement from the legislature did was it made us kind of up our game from a data point of view. Made us really look at, you know, this is the data we're collecting and this is the data we really need and how can we improve our data collection moving forward? So how do we get more data on, you know, the toxicology of people being arrested for a DUI? And, you know, what does that look like when they get into the court system? You know, what are the specific, maybe THC levels of people involved in traffic fatalities? And has that changed over time? So there was, you know, uh, I think uh, a hope in the, in the beginning that we would be able to do, you know, a really you know, strong trend report across the board. And, you know, what we found out was the reality of it was definitely a lot more complicated. And, you know, our, our ability to kind of make statements depended on the topic and the data source.
2: Well, with all this background, let's sort of dive into what you did find. And I want to start with marijuana-related arrests. Uh, in general, this number has decreased, which I suppose isn't too surprising. But there are still some pretty stark disparities in those numbers. Can you kind of dive into this for us?
6: Sure. So there's still kind of a couple disparities. The first one um, that you know people are you know definitely con- concerned concerned about is uh, the racial disparity. While the arrest rates went down, you know, 60 to 70% across the board by race, when you look at the the disparity between, for example, whites and blacks, blacks still have a marijuana arrest rate that's about double that of whites. And, And so, you know, that disparity is still there. There's also a disparity based on age where youth, you know, under the age of 21 for whom, you know, marijuana is not legal still have a higher arrest rate. And, you know, those for whom marijuana is legal, the vast majority of their arrests prior were for possession, and those almost all went away. But we really saw kind of a a higher rate for youth that in the last couple of years has come down down some, but it really was relatively flat even after legalization.
2: You also looked at the rates of major marijuana-related crime. Just first, what does that mean? So
6: what that means is you know, when you looked at marijuana arrests prior legalization, about 80% of them were for simple possession, and 20% were for more, more serious crimes, which you know, includes distribution, manufacture, possession with intent to sell. There was you know, a, a lot more of those lower-level possession arrests that occurred. After legalization, what we see is those possession arrests go down, but we don't see that same stark decrease. in the the more serious crimes, especially in a couple of years after legalization, they they do start going up. And I think what that tells us is that while the legal market serves the population of Colorado who are interested in using cannabis, there is still an illicit market. That's something that's obviously difficult to measure, like what's the full nature of the illicit market, because it is by nature underground, but that, that more serious crime has continued over the years.
2: Well, another thing analyzed was marijuana DUIs. What did you find here? So, marijuana
6: DUIs, again, the, one of the issues with, with this is we didn't have great trend data. So, I don't have, I can't tell you this is what it was before, prior to legalization, and this is what it, was, this is, what it is now. Um, however, we do have a couple of data sources that point to some interesting findings. The first one is from the Colorado State Patrol, who account for between 20 and 25 percent of all of the DUI arrests in Colorado. And so having them as a data source, I, I feel comfortable talking about their data and the quality of their data. What we've seen there is in 2014, which is when they started collecting information on the troopers' perception of what the driver was impaired by. So it's not necessarily their toxicology. It's really the trooper's perception based on their training. And in 2014, there were about 12% of their DUI citations where marijuana alone or marijuana in combination were the drug of impairment. And it was about half and half. So about 6% were marijuana alone. 6% were marijuana in combination with something, either alcohol or some other drugs. As we move along, we really see a change in that poly drug use to so that marijuana in combination with either alcohol or other drugs increase. And so it goes from about 6% in 2014 to about 23% in the latest year, 2020. Whereas when we look at marijuana alone, we see a much smaller increase from about 6% to about 9%. And so while the, you know, the total number of cases where the state patrol identified um, marijuana as one of the impairing substances, Um, really it's the the poly drug use where we've seen that, that increase.
2: We've been talking mostly crime to this point, but are there any sort of broad takeaways you can give us about the prevalence of cannabis use in general?
6: It's kind of, you know, an interesting difference in that we really haven't seen any change in the overall prevalence of youth use. It stayed right around 20% for about the last 18 years. Uh, We really haven't seen any change in that before or after legalization. We have seen increases in adult use, um, you know, so that 18 to 25-year-old group, have you know, the highest rates, and those have gone up some over time. But honestly, the the biggest increases in overall use we've seen among an old the older population, 65 and older population, their prevalence rate tripled. You know, it's still relatively low, but we're seeing a lot more older adults who are
2: um, who are trying it. Jack Reed is the interim director of the state's Office of Research and Statistics. Jack, thanks for speaking with us. Thank you for having me.
3: You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC.
2: In 1957, three years after the United States Supreme Court ruled segregated schools unconstitutional, a group of nine African-American students integrated Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas. They were met with a mob of angry white segregationists who disrupted the students' attempts to attend class for several days, ultimately requiring the presence of federal troops to get them into school for a full day. One of the students was Dr. Melba Petillo Beals, who went on to become a successful journalist and college educator. She wrote about her experience as a Part of the Little Rock Nine in her memoir Warriors Don't Cry. She joins us now to discuss her life story, the current age of misinformation, and the role of youth activism in addressing racial issues in the U.S. Dr. Melba Patillo beals welcome to Colorado Edition. Thank you for having me. When you and your eight peers were going to integrate Central High School for the first time, what was going through your mind? What did you see and feel and what do you remember?
0: If you want to talk about just prior to the point at which we approached a mob, We were excited. We we talked about it. We thought that it would be a new area for us. We did not think we'd be welcomed at first. There was certainly indication by mobs that had gathered on the days before that this was not the place we'd be welcomed. If you're 15 and 14 and 16, you think that in time, they will see that I am human. They will see that I polished my saddle shoes. I got a long ponytail too, and I'm bright. And so I have always thought of myself as bright and able to take care of whatever came up academically. So I thought, okay, there'll be this initial period. I expected to hear the N word every now and then. What I did not expect was to see a mob carrying a rope, telling us off the bat that they were gonna kill us, that we were not gonna be going in their school. Now that very first day we didn't get in a mob chased us. I only got to across the street from the school, directly in front of. Huge mob. At first, my mother and I came up behind this mob. We didn't even know what's going on. We thought, haha, perhaps there's a parade to welcome us, or what's going on, you know? And we got chased out of there with uh, these guys with their ropes, and almost got killed that day, almost got hanged. And I said, oopsie, you know, this isn't quite what I thought it was going to be. That made me totally rethink Central High School, going to Central High School. I thought, do I really want to do this? But now there was a lot of pressure. There was Martin Luther King. There was all of these people in the NAACP surrounding us. We were now, for all intents and purposes, little individual stars who were being interviewed by the press, talked to about our obligations, that kind of thing. So off we went for that second try. Second time, we were, we were escorted into school by police. And that was the time that we stayed a half, we didn't even stay a half day, like up to noon almost, because outside were uh, just an incredible crowd of people. Our first day in the school that we were able to stay all day was with the 101st Airborne Division, all carrying unexplainable equipment to me in their starchly pressed uniforms hundreds of them around, helicopters overhead. This was the scene I had only seen on television. And here I am in the middle of it. So how did I feel? I was frightened to death.
2: I wanted to ask about some of the pressures that you mentioned and the adults even trying to talk about what your obligations were as a 15-year-old student and all of your peers too. Was that easy to take in as a 15-year-old?
0: No, it was very difficult because I wanted what all 15 years olds want. I wanted to go to the dance. I wanted to go play with my friends. I want to be a normal girl. It does not feel good as a child to be called names all day. This was a painful, awful experience that really I could only talk to with the other of others of the nine. One historian has said that out of the nine of us, five or six are directly related, And so all we had for that period of time, really, was the consolation of each other. And I actually called my friend Carlotta, who has been my friend for, oh, let's say, 73 years or so every few days now. So we were all very close. We all became closer. There are now eight of us left. we all grandmas and grandpas with gray hair like me. And uh, we still are tight. meaning when we come together, it's as though there were no time lapse between our being together the last time.
2: All of this that happened in Little Rock, how did that affect your appreciation of education?
0: In my family, it's the only way out. My mother made it really clear when I was young, education is your only key out of the door as a Black person. I was adopted, as you know, by a white family, Dr. and Mrs. George McCabe. So my adopted father founded Sonoma State University. So I went from one home of educators to another home of educators. My father and mother were Quakers. That white set of parents my father would not go and see me bring home a, a B or a, a, like anywhere my mother was. So it was like go from the, you know, one house to the other. He was insistent that I go to college, graduate. And so there, in my life, there is no discussion. My children will tell you there is no discussion that doesn't include how's your homework, how's school, what classes are you taking? Uh, Could I see that piece of paper, please?
2: Well, I wanted to ask a little bit about Journalism. Since your days as a student, you became a journalist and a professor of journalism. And today we're kind of living in a time where for some reason, many people are doubtful of facts and they dismiss large swaths of the news media as biased. Do you have any thoughts as a journalism professor?
0: We just went through a really rough period. When you have leaders who support lying, when you have leaders who live in a different world reality, you have a problem. So we have many people who chose to follow that. I support journalism as our only pipeline. Do, do, do you pick one station and listen? No. I read the New York Times. I listen to CNN. I listen to MSNBC. I listen to uh, Fox. I look at everything. And then you, as an individual, have to decide. But you see, in order to spend the time to do that, you have to understand that you cannot look at some stupid thing on the internet and say, OK, That's who I am, I'm QAnon, I'm whatever. And so people do that because they don't take the time to understand the significance of of the proper news. For anyone to stand around and say the things that some of the people are saying in the air, it's, it's embarrassing, it's scary. What difference is there between the mobs that rampage Central High School and the mobs that rampage the Capitol? That was so scary to me because I'm one of those people. I know how the people in the Capitol felt, because I've been the victim of a mob before. I've been standing in line waiting to be hanged. I've been in a building, Central High School, where the mob lunged forward to the building. And that first Monday that we were in school, that mob got in that school and chased us down the hall, spat on us, et cetera, et cetera. So I understand one hopes at this point we can listen to each other and try and heal
2: I don't know if you would consider yourself an activist, but I wonder how you view youth activism when it comes to some of these issues that you were speaking about.
0: I want youth to, like when I taught, I only retired as a professor in 2014. And when I taught, one of the things I insisted on was that the children and my own children be watching the news every day. You gotta know what's going on around you. That's the first thing of activism. And then you gotta participate. Of course I'm an activist. Uh, Not long ago, John Lewis passed away, before he passed away, I have actually on my Instagram this picture of him standing behind me, and I'm in a wheelchair because I had had four spine surgeries, and he looked at me and said, hey, Melba, you ain't got time to be sick. What are you doing in that chair? You better get up and get with it. So we don't really have, I don't have time to not be an activist. Every day of my life, I'm right now thinking about the 22 election. What should I be doing? Calling people? Are we going to write letters? What are we going to do? Uh, let's get going. Let's, you know, can I do anything for, with that? Who's not being nice? You know, who needs boycott? What's going on? I mean, you got to be with the program. Until I'm dead, you know, as the mortician marches out and sets my toes afire, I hope to be called an activist. I'm angry because I couldn't march further with Black Lives Matter. I was moved by that. First of all, I was put in three weeks of depression by the death of Mr. Floyd and the way he died. I'll never forget that white policeman's face as he bent that knee in as though he had power. And that's the same power I felt white people had over me when I lived in Little Rock under Jim Crow. Exactly the same power. You have the power to put your knee on my neck and press it until I die if you want to. And so for me, I cried, had to go see a therapist. I was hysterical. And I loved the marches that went on after that because when we were in Little Rock, We were so happy when the white people marched with us because it meant the cops wouldn't shoot into the crowd. The white people who marched with us were our protection. Now here you have, life has moved forward because Black Lives Matter. There were more of our white sisters and brothers on the streets than us. It was a beautiful thing. And to me, it was the one big bit of evidence that we have moved forward. Other than that, at 79, I'll tell you, at fifteen or sixteen, I thought, you know, by the time I'm fifty, we we won't. By the time I'm seventy-nine, I will be in a wheelchair, a rocking chair, someplace, rocking back and forth happily, knitting, watching TV. We won't even be discussing this. I won't have anything to do. I'll be a bored girl. I'll watch the evening news, cook pies. I mean, come on, who knew I'd be going to? I go to more activism meetings a week. I go to church three times a week on now on Zoom, but I'm saying I'm as active as I was when I was 20, just in a different way, you know. I would have bet you that it would have all been solved by now, because uh, this is 65 years, come on. But we're nowhere near a solution. So it demands that we continue to work.
2: That was Dr. Melba Petillo-Beal's One of the Little Rock Nine. Her memoir about her experience integrating Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas is called Warriors Don't Cry. That's our show for today. Next week on Colorado Edition, right before the pandemic began, ranchers and farmers in Colorado were reporting what they thought were mysterious drone formations in the night sky. KUNC's investigative reporter takes us through a recently released report on unidentified aerial phenomena to see if anyone ever got to the bottom of that mystery. I'm Henry Zimmerman.
3: And I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production staff includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer.
2: Thanks for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.